0: Life is clay in the hands of the potter. He holds the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, the upright and the disgraceful. The remarkable thing about the Father is that He is able to take all of the pieces of life and work them into a unique masterpiece. When all I am encounters the great I am, the result is transformation and blessing. be our desire that all that we are would encounter you and that you would take all the pieces of of this life, God, the things that we're proud of, the things that we're ashamed of, the things in our past that we celebrate, those things that we lament, that you would take it all and in a way that only you can as the master potter, that you would take the clay of our lives and shape it for our joy and the glory of your name we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. December 26th, 1919, a decision was made that definitively shaped two organizations for the next 85 years. Harry Frazee sold one of his best players. His name was George Herman Ruth. You might know him as The Babe. For $125,000, the owner of the Boston Red Sox sold the rights to George Herman Ruth, the babe, to the dreaded New York Yankees. And for the next 85 years, the Boston Red Sox lived under the curse of the Bambino. The curse of the Bambino. Right, well... Yeah, Babe Ruth at the time was a pitcher, but he started dabbling and hitting, and the year before he was traded, in 1919, he hit 29 home runs, which wasn't all that bad for a pitcher even back then, but once he was traded to the New York Yankees, he started to play on an everyday basis. The first year he played for the Yankees, he hit 54 home runs and drove in 135 RBIs. He followed that up in his 1921 campaign with 59 home runs and 106 RBIs. He went on to be one of the most prolific baseball players of all time. He took the Yankees to the World Series seven times, won it four times, hit 714 home runs, hit 342 over the course of his career, and was elected to the Hall of Fame with more than a 95% election rate. He was a pretty decent player, it turned out. You read back through it and you go, well, why in the world, Harry Frazee, why in the world would you sell the rights? I mean, he didn't even trade him. He just said, hey, I just need cash. That's what I need. I need you to give me 125 k, and you have the rights to the babe. Why in the world would he do that? Well, it's interesting. If you go back and read about Harry Frazee, he was not only the president of, and, and CEO of the Boston Red Sox, but he also dabbled in Broadway th- uh, theatrical productions. And those weren't doing so hot at the time, and he needed cash. And so he traded the babe for $125,000 in cash and a loan for $300,000, and for 85 years, it haunted the Boston Red Sox. (laughs) He made a decision that was based uh, in the immediate, and he failed to see the way the long term might play out. Uh, it's interesting. This happens all the time. This happens to us as people. This happens in, in sports as we see um, with the Broncos and the Rocky. We see it happen. We see it happen. But it also happens in, in the business world. Let me introduce you to another person. His name is Ronald Gerald Wayne. Ronald Gerald Wayne, you may not have heard about him, but he was one of the three founders of Apple. He couldn't stand working with Steve Jobs. Not a lot of people could, but he really couldn't stand it. And after only a few weeks on the job, after starting this company, he sold his 10% of his Apple stock for $800, now, now, don't feel too bad for him because he went back and afterwards he knew that this was going to be a sticky point And so they went back and they renegotiated with him and they paid him another hundred or, or $1,500 to waive any rights to coming back to receive any money from Apple. So it really, in the end, it was $2,300. So don't feel too bad for him. Now, just in case you're curious, Ronald's 10% of Apple today would be worth roughly $70 billion dollars <laughs> A decision made in the short term that influenced his life in dramatic ways over the long run. And see, this is not just a sports problem. This is not just um, a business problem. We see it play out there, but this is a human problem, friends. Is that every single person in this room, there's not one person that stands outside of this, has the potential and the temptation is on the table to trade the things that we hold most dear for things that are, in the end, invaluable. Things that don't add up and things that don't matter. We call this um, physically nearsightedness. We're unable to see beyond sort of our very scope, what's right in front of us to see a little bit further down the road. But nearsightedness isn't just something that happens with your eyes, it's something that happens in your heart also. Where we make decisions that we act on in the moment and then regret in the long term, it's not something outside of any person in this room. It's a temptation and maybe one of the greatest temptations that we face, not just as followers of Christ, but as people, to make exchanges that are, in the end, to our own detriment. And the book of Genesis is going to tell us a story. It's going to invite us into a narrative that draws this point out. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. If you were with us last week, we started a a series on the life of Jacob. And we mentioned that Jacob had a number of things from the get-go working against him. He was the second born in a first born society. He was a gatherer when people and communities valued hunters. And he was not loved by his father in a patriarchal society where the father's will and what they wanted sort of ruled the day. So Jacob started off 0 for 3. 0 for 3. And we're going to pick up his story as he starts to. And we said he lives up to his name, Jacob. Jacob, the name he's given means heel grabber. It could also mean cheater or swindler or like used car salesman, but you don't want to buy his car. He's that type of guy. He's that type of guy. And this is just for free, but the names we're given, we often end up living up to. The things that people speak over us, we, we embody and we live out. And Jacob is going to do that. Look at Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 29. It says, And when Jacob was cooking stew, as he did, okay, that was sort of one of his things. He enjoyed a good pot of stew. Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Just a quick timeout. In the Hebrew, there's all these word plays that are going on with this idea of red. Esau's red hair, Edom meaning red. They're going to live, the Edomites live in a land that's really red and hilly sort of clay. And that's what they want you to draw out. They want you to see that the Esau is an earthy guy. In every way, shape, and form. 31. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and he drank and he rose and he went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What an interesting five verses. You get some insight into the dynamic of the family. You start to see that Jacob is going to live up to his name of being sort of shady. You want to clutch your purse a little bit tighter when you're near him, right? If you wants to make a deal with you, you assume you're not getting the better end of this deal right he's preparing a pot of stew when his brother comes in from hunting for the whole day he's just absolutely famished and Jacob says to him hey I've got food for you brother it's just gonna it's gonna cost you a little something it's gonna cost you a little something and the whole narrative revolves around this idea of a birthright a birthright now there's two things you need to know about a birthright for back in this sort of Hebrew culture It had two things attached to it. One, it had a physical promise attached to it. So when the father died, whoever had the birthright would typically get two-thirds of the property. So they get two-thirds of the land. They get two-thirds of um, all the animals that they had. They have two-thirds of the money that they had, two-thirds. And then Jacob, as the younger brother, would have gotten a third. So you have to read the story in light of that. So you're buying a cup of soup. For a third of the property, even if you don't have all that much, that's a bad deal, yes? Unless it's just some amazing soup, right? The soup Nazi's just stirring it, yeah, come on down, come on down, right? Okay, second thing that's attached to it, physical one, but spiritual. The spiritual heritage, the spiritual seed, the spiritual lineage, the preeminence in the family, that the direction you went was the direction that the family followed, all of that was attached to a birthright. It was attached to a birthright. And as that starts to add up in our minds, we should question even more. Esau, Like, what were you thinking? Esau, why would you make that deal? Esau, what was going on in your heart? What was going on in your mind that would cause you to trade such a great treasure for what would end up being just a treasure? Trivial trinket in the end something that just vanishes is gone right after you're done eating it. Esau Why would you do that? And I think the story is here the narrative is here in order to ask us the same question Because we're not bigger than this. We're not better than this. Are we we don't have our halos on too tight this morning do we just say listen we would never make that call because we trade the trivial for, and the trinkets for treasures all the time, don't we? We make this mistake all the time. And here's what the passage would have us examine in our own lives. The reality that nearsightedness and inability to see beyond our immediate circumstances causes us to trade and exchange the deepest treasures that we hold for trinkets, for things in life that will vanish that won't deliver on their promise and that aren't good on what they say that aren't good on what they say and see here's will you look up at me for a second there is always somebody in your vicinity with a pot of soup ready for you there is. It's the reality of the world that we live in. In Genesis chapter 4, it's going to, in the very beginning of this story, it's going to say sin is crouching at your door, ready to pounce on you, ready to destroy you. You've never woken up in the morning and not been involved in a war. You haven't. And so many of us, whether it's, whether it's sexually or relationally or in our job, we trade treasures for trinkets all the time. And it ends up haunting us, and it ends up making us angry, and it ends up just wearing on us. Listen to the way that Jesus said this. He said, the thief, and there is a thief of your soul and of mine, who would love to steal and kill and destroy. That's just the truth, friends. But Jesus said, I came that they may have, what? Life. And have it abundantly. So here, this is your birthright, friends. Life is your birthright. Salvation as a follower of Jesus, being born again in him, is your birthright. Hope is your birthright. Um, joy is your birthright. Goodness is your birthright because you are a follower of Jesus. And the temptation will always be on the table for us to trade the things that are most dear and most important and most valuable to us for things that in the end don't deliver On the promises they make i think this one concept could radically change our lives that if we were able to say yeah nearsightedness the inability to think outside of the moment causes us to trade treasures for trinkets and and treasures for the trivial if we were able to come to terms with that it might just change our lives And so let me give you, embedded within this passage are three ways that Esau gives in to what I'm going to call the treasure thieves. Because we all have them. There's all things that go on in our heart, our souls, our minds that are potentially leading us down the road. where we will trade the treasures in our life for trinkets. And I want to draw out those three in hopes that it might help us get a little bit clearer view of our own hearts and the world that we live in. Look with me again. Genesis chapter 25, verse 29. And when Jacob was cooking stew, I mean, don't you just get the picture that he's wearing his like Martha Stewart apron and he's just like, oh, hey, buddy, brother, how are you? And Esau comes in like an unsuccessful hunt, but still his ginger chewbacca hair just flowing in the wind. He's just covered in beautiful red hair. Comes in from the field. Esau came in from the field and he was what? exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. He keeps on talking about red stew. What Esau thought was that there was meat in the stew, and what he's eventually going to find out is that his brother's going vegan on him, okay? And it's just lentils, and he's going to be highly, highly disappointed, as if it would have made any difference if there was lamb or venison in the stew anyway. But he thinks there is, and there's not. And he comes in, and he is exhausted in the hebrew this word carries with it this idea of both physical exhaustion so in the new american standard translation in the niv they use the word famished they use the word famished in the new living translation they use the word words exhausted and hungry and it does it carries with this with it this total depletion of any natural resources that's where he's at that's where he's at Did you know that when you're hungry, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, you are at your most vulnerable point? It's no accident that when the enemy comes to tempt Jesus, he does it after he's been fasting for 40 days. And the text explicitly says in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus was hungry. Hungry. And what the enemy wants to do is he wants to feed on and he wants to play to the hunger, the appetites that we have, the cravings that we have, the desires that we have. He wants to feed those and he wants to sell us a lie. If you had just a little cup of soup, then then you'd be okay and that would sustain your life and you need that and you deserve it and you should get what you deserve. Here's treasure thief number 1. Craving Um, in the new testament they would translate desire oftentimes with the word lust with the word lust and we typically think of that in a in a sexual manner and there is a lust that's that's explicitly sexual in nature but this idea of lust is simply this it's a craving that we have a desire that we have and a way to fulfill the desire that makes us a promise that it doesn't intend to be good on. So, lust, in a sexual manner, like looking at pornography, we hope that this is going to satisfy this desire, and it always leaves us empty. Lust, in in a monetary fashion, we think the newer, the brighter, the shinier, the more advanced, well, then I'm going to be happy, then I'm going to be okay. And the things we lust after and the things we go for and the things that we desire always make promises. But here's the thing. Look up at me for just a second. They always require a payment that far out exceeds anything it can deliver. So the lust for someone outside of a marriage makes a promise. But when we step into that, it, the bottom falls out on us and we're left going, well, it made a promise and it didn't deliver. Esau's left with this, after he gets done selling his birthright, he is angry, he's upset, he walks out of the tent going, man, I wish I would never have done that. So the question that you should be asking is, Ryan, how do we start to train our hearts and our souls and our minds so that we're not just driven by the things that we crave? It's a great question, I'm glad you asked that. Let me, give you, let me give you two ways. Let me give you two ways. One is start to be a student of your heart. Start to be a student of your heart. For every single person in this room, we are tempted with different things. There's different things, different shiny, sparkly things, to use metaphor, that are, we are drawn to. Start to figure out what you're drawn to. The hungers that you have. The things that you chase. There's a temptation on the other end of that, and it's making a promise that it has no intention of keeping. Be a student of your heart. Secondly, I, I, I would say it like this. Combat your cravings by reading Matthew 4. No, by counting your blessings. Combat your cravings by counting your blessings. See, because here's what esau loses sight of and it causes him to lose his birthright he loses sight of the fact that they're probably leading up to this day has never been a day in his life when he was on the brink of starvation he loses fact loses sight of the fact that god has been faithful and that god has been good And when we are hungry in the physical sense, we start to feel like we need something in order to satisfy. But when we're hungry in a spiritual sense, we start to give our lives and our hopes and our dreams and our heart to things and put them on the throne that simply will never fulfill what they promise. They just simply won't. And so we combat our cravings by counting our blessings. God, you've been good. God, you've been faithful. God, you've forgiven every wrong. I live under your grace and under your mercy. You are absolutely amazing. You're glorious. You are good. And you call me your child. And we start to combat cravings by stirring our affection for Jesus. That's what we do. That's what we do. And not only that, but we engage in a fight for contentment. Have you noticed that contentment is a fleeting value in our culture? I mean, I was perfectly fine with the iPhone 5 until the iPhone 6 came out. And then I'm like, hold it, I'm like, what is this garbage? You expect me to use this? I can never use that, right? And so here's what the Apostle Paul would say about contentment. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be what? Content. He goes, I've learned it. I had to approach contentment as a student saying, teach me how to be content, which means that we may deprive ourselves from some things at times in order to learn, in order to grow. When you count your blessings, you combat life's cravings. You always do. When we, I don't focus as much on what I need when I recognize all that I already have. And that's true for all of us. So we need to go about this a little bit of a different way. Look at the way that the story continues. There's another treasure thief that Esau encounters. Verse 31, and Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Jacob, here's the deal. He's going to say to his brother Esau, there's a limited time offer for you and you only. I mean, have you ever walked through the streets of Mexico? $15 for you, 5 For you right now, one, right? And you're like, wow, I'm a brilliant negotiator. This is the way that our world operates, though. If they can get people to make spontaneous decisions, they can get them outside of the things that they value and cause them to walk down a path that they don't want to walk down. Jacob does the same thing to his brother. You've got to make this decision, Esau says to Jacob, and you've got to make it now got to make it now. And here's the truth of the matter, friends. Very rarely do we make decisions based on short-term information that we are happy with in a long-term world. If we make decisions based on just the immediate and based on what's just right now, we will be disappointed in the long-term so we have a society that just preys on this. I mean, apps like Tinder, where you can spontaneously sort of hook up with somebody and give a piece of yourself away, you can do it spontaneously. You walk through the mall, and there's you need to buy. This deal is ending. It's a limited time offer. Act now. What are they doing? They're preying on, all right, I don't want to miss the deal, and I'm going to engage spontaneously in a way that's going to end up leading to my detriment long-term. So here, this is for free. Never forfeit a future blessing for immediate fulfillment. Never, never. I can remember my grandparents, when I was, I think 10 years old, they gave me a stack of savings bonds. I'm like, awesome, $1,200 in savings bonds. This is great. And then when I became a teenager, I was like, let's cash these bad boys in, right? I need some money, I would like to go do some fun things with my friends, and so I'm talking to my dad, I'm like, well, I'd like to cash in the savings bonds that grandma and grandpa gave me for my birthday, and he's like, wonderful, let's go see how much they're worth, I'm like, it says $1,200, that's how much they're worth, dad, he goes, well, they're not worth that yet, and so we went in and found out they were worth something like a few hundred dollars, and I had a decision to make, am I going to trade them in now for $300, or am I going to wait long term for $1,200 later. It's the choice we all have to make on a daily basis. Am I going to live my life leveraging eternity, leveraging the things that are most valuable to me, or am I going to sell out and settle for less than Jesus intends and has purchased for me to settle for? He talks so much, Jesus does, about values listen to what he says in Mark chapter eight, verse 36. He said, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul? He goes, listen, you're chasing after things that in the end really don't matter. They're all just going to fade away. And spontaneity is one of the ways we feed into this forfeiting our soul. I've wrestled with it as as a parent, because living in a spontaneous culture and having a phone in my pocket most days at most times it buzzes all the time and it buzzes at the most inopportune times it buzzes when I'm having a conversation with my seven-year-old and I have a decision to make am I going to engage in a spontaneous decision or am I going to embrace a strategic one am I going to answer right now And tell my son, in no uncertain terms, whoever's on the end of this is more important than you? Or am I going to decide what's really important in my life? And am I going to build my life around the values that I hold? We live in a spontaneous culture. We hold spontaneity in our pockets. And for so many parents, I see them, I see us, I see me choosing spontaneity over the things that are really valuable. So here's what we have to do. We have to learn how to ask better questions. We have to learn how to see down the road a little bit to go, all right, if I enter into this relationship, where does this lead? Where does this go? If I leave this job at this time, where do I end up? And what happens? And if I do this in the marriage, where does that eventually take us? And where do we land? And it's a lack of vision that often leads people to make spontaneous decisions. It's a lack of vision for their life that often leads people to make spontaneous decisions. So what do we do? What do we do? Instead of spontaneity or impulsiveness, what if we were people that clarified the vision for our life and then made decisions based around the vision that we had? What if we were people who knew, this is what I want the marriage to look like, and so therefore I'm going to take intentional steps in order to get there. What if we were the type of people that said, listen, I want to develop character in my life. And so I'm going to enter into spiritual disciplines with the goal that God might, through his Holy Spirit, work in me and develop character in me. Esau only sells his birthright because he has no vision for the way that God will use him in the future. It's the only reason he does. It's the only reason that people enter into relationships that they're ashamed of, make bad business deals. It's the reason. It's at the heart of so many of the mistakes that we make. See, impulsiveness only controls people who lack intentionality, who lack vision, who lack clarity. Impulsiveness only controls people who lack clarity. Listen to the way that the author of Proverbs puts it. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty, spontaneous, comes only to poverty. Here's one of my encouragements from this morning. Take some time. Write down, what what is your vision for your life? What are the dreams God has put in your heart? Where do you want to see your career go? Where do you want to see, if you have kids, your parenting go, your marriage go? Where do you want to see your character, your attitude? What is your vision that God has given you for your life? Write it down, because impulsiveness controls people who lack clarity. And impulsiveness is one of the thieves of your joy and the treasures that God has so graciously put in your life. Please don't give them up for a spontaneous decision that you end up, in the end, regretting. I had the opportunity this week to meet with a man. His name is Jeff. He's he's Dr. Jeff, and he lives up in um, Conifer Bailey area, and he's been without shoes for six years. Not in Hawaii, Confer. So that's not not exactly a warm winter. And I had the chance to sit down with him and I asked him, Jeff, what's the deal? Why are you without shoes? And he said, "I I, I was helping kids over in Cambodia and I saw a few girls playing on the dump. And they were playing on the dump and they had no shoes. And what I found out was that either their parents sold them or they were taken against their will, but they were involved in slavery. And the people take their shoes in order to make it harder for them to run away. And he said, I made a commitment to the Lord that I wouldn't wear shoes for an entire year. And he said, at the end of that year, I went to go put my sock on. And he's like, Ryan, I, I can't explain it to you. All I can tell you is I couldn't get my sock on. And God spoke to my heart. And he said, There's three ways I will eventually put shoes on. One, God tells me I can wear shoes again. Two, Every single girl is rescued from sex slavery. Three, I die. And he started to unpack for me his ministry, which is called Joy International, and they rescue victims caught in sex slavery. And it, you guys, it is amazing. He showed me a video from just this last week of a girl who was 12 years old sister was gonna sell her into sex slavery she had no idea and Jeff's organization steps in at the very last second this undercover sting operation and they save this girl's life and he goes Ryan I can't stop I, I will not stop this is God's mission for my life and I started to think about him and I thought Man, how many of us would benefit from 10 minutes of sitting down and praying, God, what's your dream for my life? What do you want to use my life for? Because I don't want to sell my birthright. I don't want to sell my calling. I don't want to sell the platform, any sort of influence that you've given me for a cup of soup. And someone's always ready with a cup of soup, friends. And if we don't have a clear vision of God, this is where you're leading me. And God, this is a vision you've given to to me for my life we are going to settle for so much less than he wants for us because impulsiveness always controls people who lack clarity finally verse 32 let's look at this last sort of treasure thief and esau said read it with me i am about to die of what use is a birthright to me Now, we often read the Bible and we want to read the Bible literally because we feel like that's probably the best way to do it, but there's sometimes you shouldn't read the Bible literally. There's sometimes where you need to read the story and hear what's going on and make an interpretation based on what they've told you in the context of the story. So Esau says, I am about to die. Is he about to die? No. How do we know this? Well, he's been hunting all day. And it takes anywhere between 45 and 61 days to die of starvation. It's just a fact. He feels like he's going to die. And listen, we went on a family bike ride yesterday. And I'm like, I'm reading this going, this is every dinner, right? This is is after dinner. I feel like I'm going to die. I'm starving here. That's strange. Wish you would have eaten 10 minutes ago. Okay, I'm just sharing my problems now. Those are my issues. We're on a bike ride. On a bike ride yesterday, and my son comes up to me and goes, I'm dying of thirst. We've ridden a mile. A mile. Flat ground, right? And so I give him a water bottle, right? But we do this all the time. Here's the thief of treasure that Jacob or Esau encounters exaggeration, exaggeration, oh man, we do this all the time, don't we, just think about the way that you think and process things oftentimes, like in a marriage, we use words like often and never, we use those all the time, it's an exaggeration there, right, don't we, oh, she never does this, he, he never does that, they always do this, what are we doing, we're exaggerating, And here's look at at Esau's life. He says, I'm about to die in order to justify. I'm justified in making this decision because I'm on my deathbed. What good is it? What good is a birthright to me if I'm six feet under? What am I gonna do with the land? What am I gonna do with the money? What am I gonna do with the spiritual heritage when I'm dead? We do it in marriages. We do it with our morality. We justify making really bad decisions because, well, they didn't hold up their end of the deal. Or, listen, my boss is a jerk, so on his time and on the company time, I'm going to look for another job. I'll be okay with that. And I'm going to just cut a few corners, and I'm not going to do a great job. Why? Well, because they treat me absolutely terribly. Now, some of that might be true, but my guess is a lot of it's in your mind. Here's another way that we do it hear this often we hear this i hear this often is oh man christianity is in such terrible shape this is the worst it's ever been Now the only problem with that is history it's history It's nowhere near as bad as it's ever been. And is it fair to say we see a moral decline? Absolutely, we see a moral decline. Is it the worst it's ever been? Well, just go back and read a little bit about the way Christianity started in the heart of the Roman Empire, where if you were a follower of Jesus, you would be covered in tar, lit on fire, put on a pole in order to light up the emperor's night parties. And there's as many as two to 3,000 followers of Jesus crucified on crosses outside of Roman cities on a single day. We often exaggerate in order to justify. All right, so we're going to get angry about this. We're going to get upset about this. We're going to do this in response. And all I'm saying is, are things great? I think things have been better. Absolutely. Is it as bad as it's ever been? We need to keep in mind history. We need to keep in mind the global nature of the faith that we're a part of. So when we say we're followers of Jesus, we understand that there are followers of Jesus all around the globe who don't have nice, warm buildings to meet in. They don't have PowerPoints to put up slides. That they are giving their very lives because they are followers of Jesus. And when we go, oh, it's terrible here, they look up at us and go, tell us more about that bad it is so we need to keep in mind history we need to keep in mind geography and we need to keep in mind theology friends when you hear, hear people exaggerate about the state of Christianity in the United States of America I just want one verse to come to your mind just one just one and it's a promise that Jesus made and the promise is he said I will, if all of the conditions are right and all of the politics go your way and you have all the resources you need, I will build my church. Now, okay, so some of you know the verse and you're going, no, that's not it. Yeah, no, it's just simply this. I will, in the great seasons and in the terrible seasons, in the light, in the darkness, in the joy, in the pain, I will build my church. And you can sink anchor into that. See, because exaggeration starts to stir in us just this whining. We lose confidence in God. We lose boldness in ministry. And we forfeit joy on the journey. That's what happens. That's what happens. And pain has this tendency to just cloud our vision of reality. It happened to the prophet Elijah, if you want to read about it, it's 1 Kings chapter 19. He says to God, God, I'm the only one left. This is terrible. And God, my paraphrase, says, hey, Elijah, would you stop your whining? I've got 7,000 others. You're going to be just fine. 7,000 others. See, an exaggerated pain often leads to an inequitable exchange. I'm hurt. This is the worst it's ever been. therefore, I'm going to make this decision. But The anecdote is, engage in your present reality. Truth is your best friend. It is. And things may not be as good as they used to be, but they're not as bad as they could be. Engage your present reality, but keep an eternal perspective, friends. This is Paul's charge to the church at Corinth. He goes, listen, we do not lose hope, though our outward self is wasting away. If anything, it's an understatement. He's getting beat up. He's spent days and nights in the open sea. He's spent time in jail. And he goes, listen, our our bodies are wasting away. Our inward self, though, is being renewed day by day. For these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He goes, listen, listen, listen. Don't exaggerate the pain. Elevate your perspective and engage the eternity that God has promised to you. That's his command. That's his command. And when we exaggerate, we just enter deeper and deeper into our own personal narrative of what's going on. And it often causes us to sell the things that are most dear to purchase things that will evaporate in time. It's interesting. If you go back and you read this story, there's only two characters in it. You have Jacob and you have Esau. I I always wondered why Esau didn't get like a second opinion, sort of a big decision, right? Like, or maybe shop the market a little bit. Like, hey, someone's willing to offer me a cup of soup for my birthright. I'm willing to give you a lamb. Or I don't know, what do you, the deal, you have to at least engage a little bit. And he just goes hook, line, and sinker. Why? Because it's only them two and they're looking at each other. That's it. If you were to ask somebody else, hey, do you think it's a good deal for me to sell my birthright for a cup of soup? My guess is if he had any good friends, they would probably say, I think that's a terrible deal. I think that's a terrible deal. Which is why it's so important that we live in a community of faith, friends. It's why it's so much so important that if you've walked this road and are further down the road of faith than other people, that you share your story that you're honest with, these are some of the things that I've done, these are some of the decisions that I've made, these are some of the treasure thieves that I engaged in and I found, and so that you share your story so that some people who aren't quite as far along in the journey can benefit from some of the wisdom that you've gained along this road of faith. It's the reason God calls us to live in community. I was um, frustrated this week, and I was just sort of spinning myself around in circles. Nobody else been there? Okay, right, just me. So, And I said to my wife, Kelly, which I do uh, maybe like once a week, I said to her, hey, am I crazy? (laughs) And she looks at me and goes, yes. (laughs) Yes, you are. You need to just settle down and take a deep breath, go on a walk, and then we'd love to talk with you afterwards, right? I mean, it's like, but we need people like that in our life, don't we? Because if we isolate, we can exaggerate with the best of them. This is the worst it's ever been. They never, he never, she never. And we start to feed that lie. And eventually we sell the things that are most important to us. And we justify it because of the deep pain that's in our soul. So here's how the story ends. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate, and he drank, and he rose, and he went on his way. And what the narrator of Genesis wants you to feel is this just immediate regret. Oh, I wish I wouldn't have. I wish I wouldn't have. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. The most valuable thing that he had, he ended up despising and selling for something that would eventually turn into just a trinket and fade away. So here's the deal, friends. There's always somebody with a pot of stew. Always. And we are always on the brink of if we aren't careful of forfeiting the things that are most valuable to us in exchange for things that will eventually fade away. But the gospel is, the truth of who Jesus is, is not, it's not, hey, I want you to just hold on to everything as tight as you can. It's, listen, I want you to leverage the things that you have to make the most of the things that matter. And in contrast to Selling our treasures for trinkets what jesus invites us to do is to leverage everything that we have the good the bad the ugly the things we're ashamed of the life that we have and bring it to his throne his kingdom and say jesus you've got all of me you've got all of my trinkets and i'm exchanging them for one thing and it's the treasure of knowing you That I might be found in you not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in the Messiah. And friends, when we see Jesus as our greatest treasure and we step into knowing him in an intimate way, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. To quote Jim Elliot, he said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. So before you go running out of here, I just want to encourage you to take a moment and ask Jesus to search your heart. Search us, Father, and know us. Point out if there's any offensive way in us. and Lead us in the way everlasting. That's our prayer. God, is there anything that we're just, we're lusting over, we're craving, that has the potential to lead us down a road of destruction? Would you draw that out? Remind us of the blessings that you've given us. How good you've been and how good you are and how good you promise to be. Promise maker. Promise keeper. Father, if there's anything in us that wants to respond impulsively or spontaneously to fulfill an immediate need and forfeit an eternal blessing, God, would you cause us to think about what we really want for our life? Give us great vision. Give us great clarity. And Lord, would you help us to be people who engage reality, who see things the way that they really truly are, and all of the good and all of the bad, that we would be able to see that, but that we wouldn't exaggerate in order to justify. God, help us to engage reality, but to keep an eternal perspective. And so for the person in here, for the people in here who are on the brink of making a trade that they'll eventually regret, exchanging a treasure for a trinket, Lord, would you remind us Of your goodness would you remind us of your love would you give us great wisdom that we might make decisions that would lead to our life and the joy of everybody around us in your glory that would be our prayer in jesus name and all god's people said amen and amen hey south um we'll be up front our elders our prayer team we would count it an absolute joy to pray with you over you